everyone, welcome to Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And that's right, we are here to recap and review Vertigo comics starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. I'm really running out of opportunities to say that. Yeah, that's right. Things are changing fast here at the Vertiguys podcast. But this week, we are reading Hellblazer, issues 64 through 66. Garth Ennis goes Hunter S. Thompson in a story arc called Fear and Loathing. <laughs> yeah, and do we need to recap a little bit of where we've been in this series? I think we do. This is some pretty... It's kind of self-contained, but also very kind of not. Okay, so we'll start with this. John Constantine was dying of cancer, so he tricked the three Lords of Hell, the First, the Second, and the Third of the Fallen, into curing his cancer, as a result of which the First of the Fallen is super pissed at him. He has a plan to deal with this with the help of his succubus ally, Ellie. And we don't know what that plan is. No. Right. Now, as a part of trying to get his lung cancer cured, he had a run-in with the Archangel Gabriel, who lives on Earth in human form, as a handsome blonde man in a white suit, and spends most of his time being snobbish at an exclusive club. Yeah, that's right, and he was aggressively unhelpful to John when he came to him for help. And as a result, John said certain words to him. Yeah, that will come back, but we'll explain that when we get to it. It's also worth noting that John is at a really good place in his personal life right now. He's with a woman called Kit Ryan that he really loves. Yeah, and they've been together for quite a while now. Mm Mm-hmm. A year or two years, depending how you reckon time in Hellblazer. (laughs) It's been hard for me to Two years, three or four Christmases. (laughs) Yeah, you can see my wrestling with the timelines in our show notes, but... Yeah, but it was recently said that it had been more than a year, which is unusual for John. Right. Anything else? Oh, uh, he's 40. John is 40. John Constantine is over the hill. Yeah. Well, that ought to do it, I think. What are the credits for these issues of Hellblazer? All three of these issues were written by Garth Ennis. They feature art by Steve Dillon, with colors by Tom Zuiko. The letters are by Gaspar. They are edited by Stuart Moore, and they feature covers by Glenn Fabry. Glenn Fabry, Garth Ennis, and Steve Dillon, of course, we know well as the Preacher team. That's right. Okay, so describe this cover for Hellblazer number 64. Right, okay. So we have an angel holding up a holy sword. We have an even more giant flaming man reaching for the angel out of the background. It is pretty cool and looks like a Castlevania boss fight. <laughs> it does look like a Castlevania boss fight. It looks pretty fucking sick. <laughs> and there is also an arm kind of jutting into the image here, which is tattooed with a Union Jack and My Eng. Maybe short for My England, although there's not room to fit the rest of England under that Union Jack. They did not plan ahead. They did plan ahead. Fear and Loathing, Part 1, Forgotten Country. So we open on narration introducing us to the Cambridge Club. So there's this place, right? All you have to do to get in is, you have to be a bloke who went to Cambridge. In other words, your dad had to have been rich enough to put you right at the top of the shit pile. That way, you were set up for life, mate. You were up there for good, looking down on all the other assholes, And you could come here anytime you like to bloody well revel in it. So that's what this place is. Club for people who like to look down on others. For snobs. And as the narration tells us snobs, we get our look at Gabriel, sitting in his chair in the Cambridge Club, as it is apparent that he usually does. Incidentally, 
John's narration, when we saw him come to this club for the first time in Hellblazer number 43, is very, very similar to this. Right, nearly identical. Is that what they call a wingback chair? Oh yeah, I guess it is. He's got the wings out over his head. He's looking thoughtful, pensive, brooding. He's, you know, he's very opening credits of an anime series right now. It is interesting that he is here portrayed with quote-unquote wings. Yeah, that's actually a really cool subtextual image there. Good point. Something has been worrying Gabriel for two years. We get a little history of him as he's contemplating here. So I guess that means it's been two years since Dangerous Habits. Yes. Which means that it's basically been two years since John Constantine has been with Kit, right? Yeah, more or less. I mean, we don't know exactly how long Dangerous Dangerous Habits Habits took. Yeah. But it's been two years since John's meeting with Gabriel in that story. So we hear about all of the good that Gabriel did for God's chosen people, and all the horrific violence that he committed against their enemies. And some of their friends. Some of their friends? Well, it says here that he committed rape behind a carpenter's in Nazareth, and a cycle of agony began that ended on a hill above Jerusalem. Right, so he is explicitly here the angel that fathered Jesus Christ. Although I think we're to understand that Jesus is still the son of God. Gabriel was acting as an agent there. Yeah, he's a messenger. Right. And there's kind of a clever subtextual mirror here, right? Because God has his chosen people and the angels protect them and no one else. Like the Cambridge Club, it's an exclusive club. Oh, okay. Interesting read. Good point. Gabriel didn't really know why he was doing these things. We explicitly get a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, which he said happened because of one man having another, uh, which he didn't understand what's wrong with that. It says, why one man should not have another, he did not know. He just did as he was bid, the will of the Lord. Right, so these things happen, it's the will of the Lord, he doesn't claim to understand it, he just does it. Now he recalls his last appearance in Hellblazer number 43. He had been talking with this guy Charlie Patterson, and John came in and told him, Charlie Patterson is a member, a leader of the National Front. He's apparently looked into it in the meantime and confirmed that Patterson is a bully and a racist thug, a sinner. So why, he wonders, was he not reprimanded for meeting with him in the first place? And what was willed for him now, then? Why was he suddenly headed in the strangest of directions? Basically, Gabriel did something wrong, and he's not understanding why he was allowed, why that was allowed to happen. Was it the will of God that he meet with a racist? Or is God just not even watching him? It's really eating at him. So he gets up out of his chair and quite decisively strides out of the club. And we see a waiter who's been working at the club make a phone call, and he's told to abandon his job there and follow him. Right, and we're given the impression that he never leaves that chair, right? It's incredibly unusual for him to have just walked out of the club. Right. This Which waiter's... is strange, because do we imagine that he's in the club 24-7? That's really weird. I mean, maybe. I think I assume that he doesn't have to, like, eat or sleep or shit. It's still weird for him to just... Is the club open 24-7? It's still weird. <laughs> maybe they close the doors and, and, and turn off the lights and he just sits there all night. <laughs> <laughs> the club is open. But this waiter has a mysterious employer who has sent him to watch Gabriel to follow him as he leaves the club. As he's on his way out, he's stopped by two posh dandies. (laughs) And one of them says, 
I say, Thompson, three more pink gins and a cognac. Be quick about it and you shall have a shilling. The shilling. Splendid. Oinkers. <laughs> and uh, he tells them to show it up their ass, which is kind of satisfying. <laughs> these these two rich assholes find it incredibly amusing to offer him a tip. Right. Right. Well, to offer him a shilling, which is like, that's that's like less than a dollar, right? Well, it's old school money, right? Do they even have shillings anymore? That's like a Christmas carol thing to do. I don't, yeah, I guess I don't know. I think that they had shillings up until the euro. Oh, really? But okay. I don't think that they got rid of pounds because of the euro, so I think they still do have shillings. Oh, okay. I'm I... not really actually sure. <laughs> we need to look up what demarcation the shilling represents here. I would wait until the show notes, but I'm too curious. Okay, so it says here that a shilling is equal to one twentieth of a pound or 12 pence. Oh. So it's considerably less than a pound. That is smaller than I thought. I had always had the impression that Scrooge was offering that boy quite a lot of money to bring him that turkey. Okay. Well, I mean, with inflation and whatnot, Mm -hmm. I'm sure it was a lot more in A Christmas Carol than it is in... Issues of Hellblazer from the mid-90s. Yeah, but it's never been multiple pounds. No. Okay. So now it's actually like a really insignificant tip for a waiter at an upscale club. Oh, okay. Following decimalization on 15 February 1971, the coin had a value of five new pence. Hmm, okay. It was a nickel. Yeah. And I still don't know whether pounds are still a thing. Whether pounds currently exist? Yeah. It says that they are. Okay. It says it's the official currency of the United Kingdom, so I guess they didn't replace it with euros. Maybe places in the UK take both. Right, right. But we definitely are getting the impression here that whoever he's mysteriously working for, this waiter doesn't have to give a shit about his job at the Cambridge Club. Right, he is done. (laughs) Yeah. He's done with that job. They told him to frig that duty, and he frigged it. (laughs) He frigged it, but good. Now we cut to... Speaking of good frigging. (laughs) That's a much better transition than I was prepared for. Now we cut to John and Kit in bed. They've just had a good time, which John hopes will buy his forgiveness for the 40th birthday party that he accidentally threw. Which was really the Lord of the Dance's fault. Yeah, he fucked that apartment up proper, though. Yeah. So is it the same night as that comic? Not sure. It's the next morning. Okay. A way out of that, you think you can wreck my flat and charm your way out of it with a quick seeing to? You're ours, mate. Do you fancy a cup of tea? Yeah. Good, make us one while you're at it, will ya? Well, he deserved that. <laughs> he's asked Kit for a cup of tea on too many occasions. Done it many t- yeah, he's done that same thing to her many times. Right, sometime later John is going out tonight, Kit is staying in to work, and then they decide to talk shit about British novelist Kingsley Amos. Well, maybe they're talking shit about Martin Amos. We don't know. I guess it's possible. I assumed it was Kingsley. And based on the timing, this would probably have to be Amos's 1994 novel, You Can't Do Both. I see. But they have a nice couple moment here. Just talking shit about an author they don't like. (laughs) Kit is a professional illustrator. She's doing the cover for his latest book. That's how it came up. Meanwhile, Gabriel is out among the people... And he bumps into a very buttoned-up and nice-looking young lady. Oh, yes. A young blonde woman. She, well, before he gets to that, I want to mention here that we get a bit of his inner monologue, and he is 
He's lost his faith, which bothers him, it seems, primarily because he can't look down on sinners anymore. So, again, there's that, that snobbishness. He couldn't even look down on them with that pride he'd treasured in his secret moments. The doubt had killed it stone dead. Yeah, whether you read this as him wanting to regain his superiority, or him wanting to regain his faith for the sake of having faith, the point is that he's... He's definitely sort of in crisis here. Right, because of what John told him in number 43. Now, this young woman, she apologizes to him, he says nothing, so she calls him a rotten snob. He gives her quite a snobbish look. Like calling oh, him a snob. yeah, that's an amazingly snobbish look. <laughs> this yeah. aloof motherfucker. Yeah. But the insult seems to penetrate his armor. Yeah, he turns and starts following her down the street. Please, I, I did not mean to. I... I am sorry. She says it's all right, and she notices that he's distraught, and she invites him to talk about it. This is Julie, by the way. She introduces herself. Gabriel. That's really nice. Like the angel, you mean, in the Bible? Yes. Like the angel. So in the pub, John has met with Rick, who we first met at the birthday party, I think. Right, Rick the Vic, who is a vicar. And he's given him a mysterious jar. <laughs> mysterious jar sounds like something that a link would find in a chest. Huh. Mysterious jar. <laughs> <laughs> it was apparently hard to come by, and Rick is glad to have it, but this feels like a diversion. So you didn't wonder what was in the jar? I didn't think it was probably important. I thought it was just more of the ongoing hints that John has an interesting and mystical life. Okay. Well, whatever's in the jar, we don't find out how Rick plans to use it, and he has given John a tiny pocket-sized Bible in exchange. Seems like he could have just gone to the store and bought that. <laughs> it's a, it's he a... says he has no more intention of revealing his plans for this, the jar, than you have yours for that fine volume before you. Okay, I had assumed that this wasn't a Bible. I guess I assumed that the book was more interesting than the jar, that it was something mysterious that he needed for mysterious purposes. Well, it's a pocket-sized book that he got from a vicar that has a cross on the cover. Well, it could be one of the, like, old Bibles with, like, editorial mistakes or curse words in it. Oh, so you think that it might be some kind of, like, pseudo-mystical text. Yeah, or, or just, like, an, an interestingly antique Bible. Okay. Anyway, as they are pretty much done with this interaction, that is when Des and George come in. These are old friends of John's that we do not know yet. And they're both black. This is worth mentioning. Yeah, it's going to be important to the plot. George has been living in Brum, which I guess means Birmingham, since 85. He says he's back in the smoke for the first time since 85. Now, the smoke, or the old smoke, is a nickname for London. Right. And the Brum is a nickname for Birmingham. And John asks what the hell has brought him back to London. Racism! Right, some bastard burnt his house down. George and two friends were squatting in this house, he says. When a man on fire ran into the garden, George ran out to help him, but it turns out that he lit himself accidentally trying to light a cross on their lawn. Did you help him? interjects Rick the Vic. Did I, bollocks. But unfortunately, a couple of weeks later, somebody threw a Molotov cocktail through their window and burned down their house. Des says it's no better here, what with the National Front being active in London. George also mentions the cops were no help. Des says, are they ever? Right. 
Rick makes a sort of weird comment about fighting the Nazis by getting into old hurricanes and spitfires, which draws <laughs> a facepalm from Constantine and blank looks from the rest of the party. Yeah, everybody is kind of embarrassed for Rick. Oh, George also mentions that thing in Los Angeles last year. That would be Rodney King, the 1992 L.A. riots. Yeah. They are interrupted by a phone call for John. We get half of this conversation. We're in business, then. Take it slowly, right? Bring us back here about tomorrow noon. Good news, John? Asks the barkeep. Yeah. Fancy little celebration? Oh, great. Janine says it's drinks on the house, lads. <laughs> By the look on her face, that is not what she meant. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a mysterious phone call, and John has a very mysterious plan that is starting to come together. This is like the second mysterious phone call in the issue, but the waiter's mysterious employer is not John. No. Yeah, that would be really weird. So Julie and Gabriel are sitting in a cafe having an intimate conversation about all his troubles, and the waiter from the club is watching them. Apparently he somehow managed to get a waiter a job at this at this <laughs> restaurant uh, instantaneously. <laughs> I assumed he was a customer at this restaurant. Well, look, though, he's wearing the bow tie, and he it looks... You can see, like, the top of a glass in such a position that it looks like he's carrying it on a tray. Yeah, yeah, it could be. He could be sitting at a table. I oh, I suppose, yeah, he could be sitting at a table. You're right. <laughs> Maybe he's not a waiter. But in any case, he's eavesdropping. So Gabriel makes up a story. He sort of tells the truth under code names. Yeah, yeah. He, it, he does a dragnet. A Romana clef, if you will. Yeah. That he had a brother who fell out of grace with his very strict father, and maybe he's sort of worried that he's in trouble too. Right, now the brother is Lucifer and the father is God, I think we're understanding. Yeah. He says he and his brothers try to be above reproach. He's even participated in disciplining the younger boys, he says. I think he's referring there to humanity. Right. And again, calling up the old boarding school metaphor. Oh, sure, yeah. But... Cambridge is a college. This is true. But uh, she asks if he's in trouble with his father, too. He says he might be because of something said to him by a man named Constantine. Yeah. So the waiter overhears Constantine, and it seems like from this... Well, I guess we'll get to it. We'll get to it when we get there. John, meanwhile, is uh, walking the foggy streets of London, reminiscing about the old days. But he also remembers the bad parts, the terror and the guilt. It's all different now, he says, because of Kit. Right, he feels a little bit nostalgic for the old adventures that he used to get up to, but he tries to remind himself that that entailed dead mates and lost souls and cold nights with a bottle while ghosts out round the door. Right, so this is calling back up a conflict that we've seen a bunch of times in this run, sort of, John's domestic instinct to be with Kit versus his sort of thrill-seeking nature. Which, to be fair, a lot of the adventures that he's bumped into in the course of this run have not really been his fault. True. But saying her name kind of gives him boldness and strength, so he, he carries on with what he has to do. I almost believe my own bullshit. So what do you think happens between Gabriel and this prostitute here? This is a really weird moment. Gabriel's alone, and he's wandering, and he meets this 
prostitute, the streetwalker, he doesn't respond to her, but then she looks intently at him and she sort of cries as he passes, although this is an interesting facial expression that Steve Dillon has given us here. It looked more like bemusement or relief than actual sadness or despair. Right. Yeah, so I'm not sure what happens here, but seeing Gabriel touches her in some way. Mm -hmm. I don't think she's just crying because he wouldn't respond to her when she tried to, you know. Yeah, well, and based on her face, pick I, him up. Based on her face, it doesn't seem like he gave her like the penance stare or something, where she saw all of her sins and decided to turn her life around. She seems happier than that. Right. All right. Now another agent enters the story as we cut to Charlie Patterson the very racist that Gabriel was hanging out with in number 43. Yes, he's reading a book called The Beginner's Nietzsche. (laughs) And this is the guy that the waiter was reporting to. And that's, in fact, what happens right now. The waiter shows up with his report that Gabriel went talking to some do-gooder bird, he says, and almost told her who he was. He's spooked, Mr. Patterson, and I'll tell you who's bloody well doing it. Constantine. I want out of this, all right. If that creepy sod's sticking his nose in, that's it. I quit. No, you frigging don't. Right, Patterson is not having his spy quit, and he is not having Constantine interfering with his affairs, but he says he doesn't dare go after him directly. Anyone who tried would probably end up putting the gun to their own head. Lenny Fisher told me he's shacked up with some Irish tot. Been going for over a year. Get a couple of hards together, okay? Do her. Shit. So, yeah, so this is this is the part that I was going to say is weird, is, like, they overhear that Constantine is part of the reason that Gabriel is upset, and somehow they think that killing Constantine is going to solve all their problems. But this is a conversation that Gabriel and Constantine had two years ago. That is true. <laughs> and it's not just a matter of them misunderstanding, because when they go after Constantine, Constantine doesn't, like, set them straight. Uh, He doesn't say, like, well, I haven't had anything to do with Gabriel for two years. Which, of course, wouldn't be true. Uh, (laughs) yeah, we're gonna come back to that notion. But, yeah, Patterson is, like, really paranoid about anybody messing with Gabriel, it seems like. He was trying to get his foot in the door, and even though it was two years ago, the fact that Gabriel is freaked over what Constantine said is an interference that will not be born. Right, yeah. Patterson is determined to get his claws into Gabriel so that he can bring some mystical might to bear on government and the National Front's political plans. Yeah. And the final page here, we have Patterson standing at his desk with a big Union Jack behind him. It's a full page, perhaps not the most intimidating full page spread uh, a villain in this comic has ever gotten. <laughs> but. That brings us to issue 65, which has a Glenn Fabry cover of Kit Ryan. Yeah, sort of a wind-blown, idyllically Irish-looking kit. Yes, although there are storm clouds in the background. Mm-hmm. Fear and Loathing Part 2, London Kills Me. And we come in on Julie and Gabriel talking once again. She tells him he shouldn't be so hung up on his father. Maybe it's time you moved out on your own. Yeah, so she doesn't seem to know that it's a code. What the equivalent of going out on his own for Gabriel would be, we don't know yet. Yeah. He says, That isn't possible. But she tells him he shouldn't feel so guilty. No guilt, eh, Gabriel? No guilt. 
Yeah, and from the look on his face, he might be kind of internalizing this. Meanwhile, at Kit's place, we get another one-sided phone conversation. Apparently, somebody is urging her to come back to Ireland. Yeah, it seems like she wants to move out of London, although she knows John would not. She's talking to someone named Claire, who has a boyfriend named Patrick, but seems to fancy John. Oh, right. (laughs) You dirty wee bitch, he's not your type anyway. She hangs up because she thinks she hears John in the hallway coming. And it's not John, it's two dudes who break into the apartment. Frig me, she's gorgeous. Crying shame, innit? And the second guy pulls a a small knife as he says this. So we got this big brutish guy, we got this uh, this little shit with a wispy mustache, and she just orders them right out of the apartment. Get out of here now, right friggin' now. Be easy if you don't give us any trouble, love. You've got the wrong boyfriend, that's all there is to it. You'll be sort of a warning, know what I mean? Last chance, son. Ha <laughs> ha, you hear this, Mickey? It's me last chance. And as the big one Sam closes on her, she gets something from the sink and sticks him with it. She sort of bares her claws, just her fingernails, as she goes to make a run past Mickey. She's faster with her nails than he is with his knife, and she claws the shit out of his face. Me face! She's ripped me friggin' face off! Get her, Sam! But Sam is too busy, staring at the chef's knife she stuck in his junk. Mickey? Mickey! Alright, Patterson gets the bad news, and decides, like it or not, they're gonna have to go after Constantine directly. I'm <laughs> I'm pretty amused that this basically a mob boss gave up on intimidating Kit Ryan immediately. <laughs> <laughs> right. Apparently the bitch has teeth. He asks his butler guy for a car and some thugs. Get a car ready, and the appropriate Neanderthals. I'm coming too. His butler asks if he's okay, and he sort of clutches his junk subconsciously and says, <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Meanwhile, we have John and Dez on a bridge which is coated in National Front graffiti. Yeah, there's some fascist graffiti and some anti-fascist graffiti competing with it. And some football graffiti, just for fun. Yeah. They're reading a press release from the National Front which is disavowing violence, and they're just kind of unbelieving about this. They're taking the piss, John says. Dez says it gets worse. His mother got a note that says, go back to Africa, wrapped in dog shit through her front door the other day. Yeah. John says he's sorry, but George, Des says, is wound up enough to hurt somebody. Sign of the times, innit? All these little friggers out of work looking for the enemy within? It's not like I took their bloody jobs. John says that he could investigate Patterson, but before he gets the chance to do that, a baseball bat hits him in the back of the head. Speak of the devil. Now, Des tries to defend John... Patterson orders them both dragged into the car. Yeah, but before they drag him to the car, the boys have some fun just savagely attacking Dez. Yeah, this guy has a box cutter, and it doesn't look good. Yeah, there's another guy with a baseball bat. He gets it much worse than John does. Meanwhile, Kit is hiding out in a pub. Yeah, she calls Chaz. She's trying to find John. She sends the message to meet her in the Green Man and to stay away from the flat. The Green Man's one of their favorite pubs. She's ready to give John a bollocking, she says. She knows that it's about him because the thugs said so. 
Right. But then she has a moment where it seems to emotionally hit her. Either she's worried about John because they can't find him, or she's just sort of suddenly feeling what happened to her. She covers her mouth and runs out of the pub. John, meanwhile, wakes up tied to a chair, and he and Patterson take turns taunting each other. I thought it was meant to be impossible to sneak up on you, Constantine. Losing your touch. Yeah, me dickless little shit detector must be on the blink. And he slaps Constantine. Nice one, Schwarzenegger. Been giving it a bit extra on the five-knuckle shuffle, have we? Charlie starts to slap him again and then smiles evilly and says, Show him his friend. Oh, and in the meantime, but right before they show him his friend, they also mention that this is about Gabriel. Just sort of offhandedly, Charlie lets it slip. You should have stayed away from the Archangel, you know. Yeah, and Des is bad off. This is... This is incredibly nasty. Yeah, it's really gruesome what these racist attackers did to Des. Yeah, just his face slashed and beaten to pieces. John sees it and screams, Oh no! Oh bloody hell, no! I want to call out a bit here from the foreword to this trade by Warren Ellis. Will Simpson, an excellent artist, responded gamely and professionally as he always does, but his heart was never in the horror. Will is a very nice man, and so his waking hours are not consumed with daydreams of gratuitous claret and eviscerated royalty. What Steve brought to the book, in addition to his phenomenal storytelling skills, was an utter relish for the punished meat and torn skin. So basically, Ellis suggests the book could get nastier under Steve Dillon's pen than it could under Will Simpson's. And I do think that this is a strength of Dillon's art, because it's so... Uh, grounded and realistic, that this gruesome sight looks really effectively horrifying. Yeah. Um, I feel like if we were talking about Dave McKeon art here, we would just have, like, a face in the dark and John's reaction to it. Maybe. It's interesting. I've always said that uh, Steve Dillon does, like, good gore. There's often an element of comedy to his gore. The what's become of me face, as you put it. Right. Exactly. But this is played for pure, like, for pure, like, drama and shock. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it's not fun even in a horror kind of way. It's just really dramatic of, like, these Nazis really tore John's friend to pieces. Right. Patterson leaves John and Des alone for the moment. Meanwhile, George is looking for his brother. Yeah, he goes to the lunch counter where John had lunch with Des and he finds out that they left together. He mentions Des is missing. Not surprised if he's out with John Constantine, says the manager. What What do you mean? Bloke's bad luck, any Friggin' Jonah. He goes on to mention some of John's uh, previous friends that suffered bad luck. Richie Simpson, who was burnt to a crisp. The nun, whose head ended up on a spike. I don't know the nun. Is that one of the Newcastle crew? Yeah. I don't remember when exactly she got her head on a spike, but... Right. George calls a friend, Bates, who used to keep a shotgun for Joe Hollis. Joe Hollis being a minor gangster we've encountered before in these pages. Batesy. George Foster, remember? Yeah, I know you still owe me one. You still looking after that sawn-off for Joe Hollis? Yeah? Even better. I need it. What's even better, I believe, is that Hollis is dead. He was killed by the ghosts of the two pub owners. Right, yeah. So now he's looking after a shotgun for nobody, which is convenient. Gabriel and Julie, meanwhile, have been walking and talking all day. Are these cherry trees? 
she asks as they wander through the park. I believe so, Julie. They are. I love them in spring, don't you? With the blossom. I think I'm happiest in spring. What could it hurt, the narration says. And it's very clear that Gabriel likes her a lot, although it's not entirely clear if there's anything sexual in it. He says, Oh, father, rejoice. Whatever it was you wanted them to be, this girl is it. The life and joy and truth and purity. And Gabriel causes the blossoms on the tree to, to burst into bloom. No guilt, Gabriel, she says, and they kiss. I just want to point out that this is where I figured out what was going on. If this seems too good to be true, it is. Now we cut to John Constantine. He's on a beach. It's rather like that issue where he was on a beach. Right. I think that may have been called on the beach. I think it was. Which is weird, because when we last left him, he was, you know, tied up in a warehouse. This is some very, like, iconic Constantine art, wandering on the beach alone, looking all cool and lonely. He sees Kit on a promontory and starts running, trying to make his way to her. Yeah, she turns, and he wakes up, still tied to the chair, with a sudden realization. Kit! Yeah, we get a full page here of Kit turning, giving him a sad look, and then he wakes up and we get a nearly full page of his horrified face. What are the implications of this dream? This is not an incredibly efficient use of pages, although it is dramatically effective. Yeah. That brings us to Hellblazer number 66. On the cover, we have John Constantine, black-eyed, tied to a chair. Somebody looks like they've thrown a copy of Mein Kampf at him. And it's on its way towards his head. It's also worth noting that he is surrounded by drifting white feathers. This is Fear and Loathing Part 3, Down to Earth. And we open on the rather distressing narration. Des died an hour ago. He silently apologizes to Des. Sorry, old son. I'll see you soon. And Kit, something's happened to her and I can't do a thing. I've let her down. I always knew I would. I... Wondered if there's kind of a double meaning to his narration here. He let her down in the sense of not being there when thugs came after her, but also sort of he let her down in the broader sense of not being able to keep himself out of trouble. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't even see that as a double meaning. The whole thing in his mind is his fault. Right. That's when Patterson and his goons enter. You from room service? That's our title page. We cut away. Gabriel is with Julie. They arrive at her place, and she asks if this is his first time. He dissembles a bit, and then, yes. It's okay. Back at the Nazi hideout, Patterson rambles on about how John thinks that he's stupid and small potatoes. It's nice to have someone to look down on, isn't it? And he's got a long speech here. I don't necessarily want to repeat a lot of his repellent philosophy, but what's interesting is that the comic unambiguously presents him as well-spoken, and he's presented as... Not a stupid racist, but a smart one. Fully aware that he's using stupid people and, and people's fear for his own power. He's still a stupid guy, though. Constantine retorts, You know something, Charlie? When you gloat, you do it in style. Hate, he says, it keeps morons from realizing they don't have any prospects. And we've got to keep the morons occupied, haven't we? The thugs seem delighted to hear this, despite the fact that he is clearly talking about them. <laughs> Meanwhile, George has obtained the sawn-off and now has a Nazi on the end of it. Right, a guy who bragged too loudly in the pub about his racist friends. 
E6 the shotgun in this guy's face and demands the location of Constantine and Dez. Putney! Old field off the tracks in this shed at the bottom, I swear! Right. Don't kill me! Relax. George says, pointing the gun at the back of his knee. So, we cut away to Gabriel and Julie are having very Steve Dillonish sex. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just as in Preacher, we have the narration about how the angel uh, could not have possibly understood how nice sex feels. She feels like heaven. Father. Oh, my father. What she does with her fingers. Yeah, now we get a full-page look at what she has done with her fingers. She, it's worth mentioning, is Ellie the Succubus. And she has reached into Gabriel's chest and pulled out his heart. Shit! This is when I realized what they were up to. <laughs> <laughs> you better go now, Gabriel. Your daddy wants a word. And then after he's gone, she whispers to herself, Got you, you bastard. Back at bad guy headquarters. Right, Charlie, why don't you stick your speeches back up your arse and tell me what you want with the snob? Patterson says that he thinks an all-out race war is coming and he wants some mystic muscle. Charlie, you have a hope of corrupting him. How are you going to do it? Get him to say the Lord's Prayer backwards? You're too late anyway, I've done it. He fell tonight. So untie me and fetch me silk cut, and I'll give you him on a plate. John is remarkably on top of events, considering. But he's right. Patterson decides to go along with this. He orders his boys to dump Dez, and that's when George sees them carrying him out. Yeah, I guess George has made his way there. Now we cut to heaven, where Gabriel is getting the big old boot. You could call it a dressing down. It seems like his robe and his chainmail have been torn off, uh, as well as his sword shattered. And then we get a two-page spread of him sort of falling from the sun towards a sort of hellish redness. Yeah, his wings are ruined, and he falls. Although he doesn't make it all the way to hell. We'll get to that. Yes. John is on Tide now, and he says that once he's done with Gabriel, Patterson can have him. But he's thinking to himself how he'll destroy Patterson. You're going down, Charlie. You and as many of those boot boys are yours as I can manage. And if Kit's hurt, if Kit's hurt, Charlie, I'll leave you alive when I'm finished. This option is immediately removed. <laughs> yes. In a page that I found very satisfying, not dumb, very smart Charlie, <laughs> gets blasted through by George. <laughs> John is annoyed as he had a plan to take apart the whole lot of them. I had this bastard eating out of me hand there. I was going to take him and his old pack of bastards to pieces. Screw you, Constantine, says George as he finishes off Charlie. George demands that John not judge him, and he leaves. Ah, oh, shit. So yeah, Charlie's dead and good riddance. Mm-hmm. Later we find John and Kit together again, and she is mad as hell. You promised to leave me out of it, John. That's the arrangement, remember? Yeah, shit. Look, love, I gotta nip out for a bit, right? Before you nip anywhere, you can get in the kitchen and clean up all that frickin' shite. Which is Sam's blood, where he was stabbed in the crotch with a chef's knife. Yeah. She also asks why he didn't turn up when she was in trouble. She says you weren't bothering your arse to turn up. It was tied to a chair with the rest of me. John notes in his narration how he doesn't want to piss off, despite the bollocking Kit just gave him. Have to smooth her over later. Bit of crowing to do now. 
Yeah, he heads to a mausoleum in a graveyard where he meets Ellie. And she has got the wingless Gabriel captive. Did he do the cherry blossom? Yeah, you were right. The big soppy git. Five are you, Omi. Gabriel asks, why? I'm in trouble with your opposition, remember? You wouldn't help me before. Had to fix it me own way. Pissed him off. You're me new minder. As for me, Ellie says, I just wanted to see you screwed. Gabriel refuses to help. He says all he's got left is the pride that he won't have anything to do with Constantine. But John disagrees. According to a little book I bought recently, this is the only thing keeping your arse out of the fire. It and is. it produces Gabriel's heart. Yeah, so I guess he can't be sent to hell when he's incomplete. His heart being on earth keeps him bound here. Gabriel says John can't understand what he's taken from him. But Ellie says she can. She screams at him for killing her lover. She fell in love with an angel, Tally, years right. ago. Her lover was also an angel and lost no less than Gabriel has. Gabriel says that there's more to this than just protection. Why is it when people like you see something pure and good and beautiful, you have to kick it down and drag it through the mud? If you have to ask, you'll never know. And then, so this gets, I think, a little bit gratuitous. <laughs> uh, in order to see to what's left of Gabriel's wings, John, with glee, pulls out uh, a chainsaw. Yeah, that's right. It's a bit much. So we end on Gabriel, homeless, with bloodstains on his, the back of a blanket thrown over his shoulders. And he's wandering. No more snob, then. No more pride. Just a frightened, fallen angel, lying in the dirt. And he crouches in an alley between two pieces of National Front graffiti. Yeah, and the narration tells us that this is the end, but we know that it isn't. So, what do you make of that last interaction between Gabriel and John? When they say that they have to, they, they sort of have to wreck Gabriel because he's so beautiful and pure, what do we think that means? Well, I think that Gabriel thinks of himself as good and pure. John probably sees him more as, like, snobbish and haughty. Yeah. And that's why he wants to bring him down. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, he, he um, I guess he always considered himself pure because he did what he understood to be God's will, even though we know that he committed atrocities under that banner. Right, he's in the club, to go back to to go back to the metaphor from the start. Mm -hmm. He's in the club, and that makes him pure according to his ideology, which actually sort of reflects on the National Front's ideology as well. Right, and because of his aloofness, he is not addressing problems that are affecting people, uh, like the National Front, like racism and violence among humans. Right. John sees him as perhaps uh, willfully detached from the problems of humanity, which is not fair. Yeah. So maybe because he's been down in the dirt, they can uh, they hope that he develops some empathy for humanity. Yeah. Although, it's not like they're setting him up to do to do nice positive things. <laughs> no, the they want him. They want him in their pocket for a very specific purpose. And we don't know the extent of John's plan right now, but it certainly seems like having an archangel in his pocket when he deals with the first is going to be handy. Yeah. It is interesting because it brings you back to all those times that he and Ellie talked about it, and they were like, we'll get this frigger. Yeah. You know, were they talking about the first, who she also has reason to dislike, or were they talking about Gabriel? Yeah, it's interesting to me that Ellie is given a personal reason, a personal stake in this. 
because John is known for using people. And we see that in this scheme, she is the one taking on most of the hard work and most of the risk. But she has her own reason for wanting to do so. She blames Gabriel specifically for her lover's death. Right. Now, I've got to say, for a part three, this feels very unresolved. Okay. I mean, you could argue that the threat of the Nazi guys has been eliminated with their leader, but the National Front graffiti in the last panel suggests some foreshadowing that they're going to continue to be a problem. Huh. These Nazi guys are dealt with. Nazi guys will never be fully dealt with. Uh, Yeah, but I think there's more to it than just Nazi guys will never be fully dealt with. I think there's some implication there that they're going to continue to be a problem in the future of this story arc. And this story arc is really not resolved. This is only one step in Constantine's bigger plan. Yeah, that's right. We still don't know the extent of his plan to deal with the first. This is just just the beginning. And things Um, are far from resolved with him and Kit as well. That's what I was going to say also. We know that she's... Mad as hell. We don't know yet what comes of it. We know she's mad as hell and that she's got an offer to return to Ireland. Yeah, that's true. Huh. I think it's interesting, too, in this story arc to see... I mean, Kit had always warned John to keep her out of his mystical nonsense. And the thing is, he sort of did. She wound up embroiled in trouble that he was having, but it was with human racists. Yeah, and it's not because of anything he did to involve her. It's just because they knew that they lived together. Right. And it's interesting that she was completely able to handle the situation, but she's still pissed about being put in it. Oh, yeah. Uh, we I have mean, talked about her as... Would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's reasonable. That's very reasonable. We have talked about her as being, like, a character who could go on adventures if she wanted to, but she clearly is not interested in that. Right. It's interesting, too, to see, like... The standard sort of John gets his friends killed trope, but again, with a situation that has no mystical threat whatsoever. Yeah. Just Des happens to be hanging with him. He gets abducted by racists and Des gets killed in the process. Yeah. So it's interesting to see the sort of standard Constantine tropes, but played with a completely mundane enemy. Yeah, that's true. But I think perhaps the most interesting thing in this is the kind of parallels that it's drawing between Gabriel and the and the National Front guys. Mm-hmm. That Gabriel views God's chosen or non-sinners as being part of the club. Yeah. This idea of just, like, of belonging to something exclusive so that you can feel better about yourself, you know? Right. Yeah, a heavy couple issues. Definitely. And I'm looking forward to seeing where it's going. I, th- I guess I say that a lot, this part of the show. But... <laughs> Well, that is one thing a good comic book is expected to do, is engender interest for next month. Right. Well, in our next Hellblazer episode, join us for Dear John. But join us next week as we return to Preacher, and at long last, every dog is day. <laughs> Finally! Vertigais is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website at vertiguys.blueberry.com, where we've got lots more episodes, Sandman episodes, Hellblazer episodes, and Preacher episodes, plus show notes on every one. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email, vertiguys at gmail.com. That's right, you can reach us on Facebook, facebook.com slash vertiguys, and you can reach me on Twitter at blankcastjohn. You can reach me on Twitter at vertiguys. Whatever method you're using to listen to the show, uh, we'd appreciate a positive review. That's right. We always appreciate that. Helps other people to find the show. 
and tell your friends about Furry Guys. Tell your family. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. There's, I want to say it's called Rage of Demons, which takes place entirely in the Underdark. You don't want to get that one. No, because you hate the Underdark more than anything. I do. Don't you? Why do you say that? It's where Drow live. Well, I I don't know that you could say that I hate the Underdark based solely on the fact that Drow live there. Like, I don't know what fucking planet the Transformers come from. I don't like the Transformers movie. Is it fair to say that I hate the planet where the Transformers come from? Not really, because I don't even know what the fuck planet that is. You know what I mean? Cybertron. <laughs> Get <laughs> the fuck out of my house. <laughs>